This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today, last letters a little-known story from Australia's war in the Pacific. Australian troops, many with little training, were charged with halting a seemingly unstoppable Japanese force. We had no artillery support. They had superior armaments, they had portable artillery and heavy machine guns. April the 28th, 1942 was a terrible day for the Australian fighter pilots defending Port Moresby from Japan's relentless bombing campaign the Australians sustained huge losses. But the battle was most notable for how it ended. Australians from the 39th Battalion were really surprised to see mailbags with white streamers attached to them falling from a bomber. It was surely the most violent and the most unusual postal delivery in Australian history. These mailbags contained prisoner of war letters written by Australian prisoners in Rabaul. Each of these 395 handwritten letters carried messages of love and hope from deep inside the Japanese war machine. So how did this come about? This was such an unprecedented event. Here's Brett Evans with the story. Australia's war in the Pacific began in December 1941 with the infamous Japanese attack on America's Pearl Harbor. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. Australia's leader immediately responded. It is our privilege tonight to introduce the Prime Minister, the Honourable John Curtin. Men and women of Australia, we are at war with Japan. Curtin rallied the country. Each must take his or her place in the service of the nation for the nation itself is in peril. This is our darkest hour. Let that be fully realised. Our efforts in the past two years must be as nothing compared with the efforts we must now put forward. John Curtin's fears were well-founded. Six weeks later, on January the 23rd, 1942, the Japanese arrived on Australia's doorstep when they attacked Rabaul, on the New Guinea island of New Britain, northeast of Port Moresby. At the time, Rabaul was defended by a token Australian garrison known as Lark Force. The battle lasted a few hours and was a disaster. The Australians were overwhelmed. And over 800 became prisoners of war. Nothing was then heard from the men of Lark Force until those four mailbags dropped from the sky over Port Moresby, three months later. I came across the story of the mailbags in a footnote of Australia's official history of World War II, and it's intrigued me ever since. Why did the Japanese drop the bags of letters? Who were the men of Lark Force, and what did they write? My curiosity led me to an archive room deep in the heart of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra and to an equally intrigued curator, Tracy Langner. At first, the Australians weren't sure what to make of the mail drop. Initially, of course, when these bags were recovered, 
They were really suspicious. This is not how the Japanese behaved. Why were they dropping mailbags containing letters of prisoners of war who were held on rebel? At this point, we'd heard nothing about any of the prisoners in rebel. So they remained suspicious for a few days and then they were able to ascertain through cross-referencing. So in each of the mailbags, there were roughly about 100 letters. They could see that the names on the letters matched the actual names of prisoners. So they knew that the letters were authentic. In May 1942, the story about the letters was released to the press. A month after the letter drop, there was an article in the Melbourne Argus, and it was titled, Meagre News in Letters from Rabaul. So this letter reads, We are getting used to a diet of rice, fish and milk. We are given a sleeping blanket and a mat. These and other extracts from letters from Australian prisoners dropped by a Japanese plane over Port Moresby recently, were given today by Mr Ford, Army Minister. The Australian War Memorial eventually got hold of some of the letters. Here's one from Lance Corporal Eric Dennis, writing to his family in Claremont in Western Australia. Dear Mother, this will only be a short letter to let you know that I am a prisoner of war and am being held at Rabaul under the Japanese. This is not the regular mail service under the Red Cross system. Interesting extracts from the letters were, I do not know how often we will be able to write, probably not for a long time after this, and the Japanese are going to great trouble to see that we have the privilege of writing this note. So there begs the question, why? Why did the Japanese facilitate this letter drop? Sapa Dreen Shenhall from Taralgon in Gippsland. Please do not worry about me, as I am all right. Let us hope and pray that it will only be a very short time before we are all together again. A lot of the letters that they're writing, they're very personal and they're very heartfelt. I've said more prayers than ever in my life. Tell Marie those beads she bought me, they're they're nearly worn out. Don't know when I'll be able to write again, but keep your chin well up, beloved, and maybe it won't be long before we are together again. As Tracy gently places one of the letters on the palm of my hand, the desperation of their situation suddenly reaches out to me across the decades. Some, like Sergeant Bob Hanna from Melbourne, strike a defiant note. Would you please see that the office and my friends are advised that I am still in the land of the living and intend to stay that way? Very best. Love, Bob. I am amazed at how beautiful the handwriting is. You look at the cursive. The regular mail service under the Red Cross system will probably start in a month or so, and then we will be able to write more regularly and also receive parcels. When they wrote these letters to their families, they were being held in what we now know were horrendous conditions. The Australian prisoners in Rabaul were worked as slave labour, beaten and starved, and some were executed. Of course, none of this appears in the letters. Whether they believed it or not, the men sounded optimistic. There is no need to worry. We are being well looked after. Love to all, Eric. Cheerio. My love to you all. Les. Now, these letters, when they were recovered, they could see that they'd already been censored by the Japanese and then they were again further censored by the Australians. At some point, a decision must have been made. The letters would be sent on to the men's families. 
In September 1942, eight months after the men of Larkforce were taken prisoner, a local postman walked up Matthews Street in Punchbowl, Sydney. At number 55, he slipped a letter into the mailbox, oblivious to the mix of joy and anxiety he had just delivered to Dorothy Freeman. The letter was from her husband, Ronald. My darling wife, as you can see by the bottom of the letter, I'm a prisoner of war, but still whole and hearty. He and his brother enlisted together in June 1940. Ron's daughter, Vicky, was two months old at the time. He was only 26 and my mother was 24 and they'd been married for three years. I think those days men and women probably were very patriotic. They were told it was their duty, they had to go and fight for their country and that's what they did. And all of their friends perhaps were doing it at the same time. Ron and his brother Walter were both gunners in the 17th anti-tank battery. Before the war, Ron worked as a barman at the Punchbowl Hotel. I hope this letter will stop you worrying as to what did happen to me. There is nothing to worry about as we are fed and treated all right. I have been worrying about you all the time. I hope you haven't upset yourself too much during the interim as I couldn't bear anything to happen to you now, darling. How are you keeping anyway? It's getting closer, isn't it, to the new edition? Dorothy was pregnant with Vicky's little sister, Gay. And then why have another baby? Well, maybe it was an accident, I don't know. <laughs> How is Vicky coming on these days? She must be getting a big girl now. Look after them and yourself, sweetheart. I'm only looking forward to the day when we can all be together again. How is Mum keeping? She must have been worried about us both, so it will be good news for her also. Once again, I'm all right. Please don't worry about me. Look after yourself. My father was obviously very concerned about my mother. He knew my mother was a worrier, and I think he was trying to say, don't worry, I'm okay. Uh, obviously, he wasn't at the time. I love you. I love you. Very emotional. Kiss Vicky for me. Your loving husband, Ronald Freeman. And I still do have tears in my eyes when I read the letter. Meanwhile, in the Melbourne suburb of Middle Park, another letter arrived. This one was addressed to Mrs Alice Burrows. It was from her eldest son, Sergeant Bob Burrows. Dear folks, just a short note to let you know I'm all right. I am a prisoner under the care of the Japanese. I can only write one letter. Yeah, well, he was my big brother, of course, and uh, I worshipped him. Um, he was working at Holeproof, uh, making women's stockings, but whilst it didn't sound like a very manly uh, occupation, uh, it was bloody work, and uh, I was happy for him to be able to contribute to the money. War veteran Jim Burrows is now 95. He had a twin brother, Tom, and both looked up to big brother Bob. He'd been in the... CMF, they were called the Chocos in that time, a very derogatory term. And of course when Pearl Harbour came along, they were caught up immediately and then they were transferred up to Rebel. I can only write one letter, so will you let Heather know? Yeah, Heather was his girlfriend, unfortunately. Uh, well, when I say unfortunately, we'd never heard much from her later. And similarly, Tom had a lovely girlfriend in the WAFs. Keep the old bike in good nick, as I will need it again. And Tom and I, my twin, we made a little tin shed at the back for his motorbike to protect his motorbike. Now and again, he'd hop in his motorbike and disappear down to uh, 
point to pee in. I hope you are all okay and haven't been worrying too much. Get Jim out if you possibly can. That's another one where uh, everyone's looking after their little baby brother me when Robert says get Jim out of the army as if he could do anything about it. <laughs> there was no bloody way. I didn't want to get out anyway. I'll sign off now. Don't worry. Cheerio. Keep collecting the allotment. Love, Bob. The allotment was Bob's army pay. But the letter's arrival also caused some tension. My older sister, Pat, who was, uh, she was lovely. She was like a mother hen to us, especially me as a little baby, her little baby brother. I, Mum got very hurt because the letter somehow arrived with Pat and Pat either didn't want to tell her or what have you, but came out later, of course, and she's trying to protect Mum, yeah. I mean, I don't know what she could have done, of course, but that was my sister. And then silence. Nothing more was heard from the Lark Force prisoners. But unknown to their families at home, three months earlier, the captured men had been marched through Rabaul to the docks, then onto a Japanese ship and into its dark hold. Tracy Langner again, from the Australian War Memorial. The Australian prisoners of war were ordered to board the Montevideo Maru. So the prisoners, alongside also civilian internees as well, were going to be transported from Rabaul prison camps to prison camps on Hainan Island, which is south of China. Many of the men were sick and all of them were malnourished. And although it was carrying prisoners, the Japanese did not mark it as a POW ship. This would prove to be a fateful decision. The ship's captain and crew were unaware that they were being stalked by the enemy. Eight days into the voyage, they were hit by an American submarine called the Sturgeon. The Montevideo basically sank in around 10 minutes. On board at the time were roughly 1,000 prisoners, 845 Australian prisoners of war and 208 civilian internees lost their lives that day. This means, of course, that in September of that year, when their letters arrived, the men who wrote them were already dead including Ron Freeman, his brother Walter, and Bob Burrows. But a handful of the Japanese crew survived. Speaking to the ABC's 7.30 report in 2003, the last remaining survivor of the sinking, Japanese sailor Yoshiaki Yamaji, told for the first time what he witnessed of the Montevideo Maru's final moments. When I got up on deck, the ship was leaning to starboard. People were jumping into the water. Thick oil was spreading across the sea. There were loud noises, metal wrenching, furniture crashing, people screaming. I have not been able to forget the death cries. The men who went down on the ship were a cross-section of 1940s Australia. They were public servants and plantation owners, missionaries and rugby internationals members of the Communist Party and members of the Salvation Army. The brother of former Prime Minister Earl Page was also on board. 
as was the uncle of future Labor Party leader Kim Beasley and the grandfather of the musician and politician Peter Garrett. The war is over. The Japanese government has accepted the term to surrender. In August 1945, the war in the Pacific ended and Australia's troops began to arrive home. Ron Freeman's wife Dorothy, Vicky and baby Gay, who had been born after her father was taken prisoner, went to meet the arriving ships. My only memory of those times, and it's not a clear memory, was after the war, being taken down to the wharf when the troop ships were coming in and my mother was looking for my father. I know she was crying, or I feel she was crying, because she was only advised at that time that he was missing in action. So really, when you think about these letters that were airdropped, you can imagine how incredibly important they were for families, given that in a four-year period, that was the only contact that they'd had, that was the only thing that they'd heard about them. And then, in October 1945, the official telegrams arrived. It is with deep regret that I have to inform you that NX 53296 Ronald Freeman became missing on 1st July 1942 and is for official purposes presumed to be dead and desire to convey to you the profound sympathy of the Minister for the Arts. James Lyons became missing on 1st July, 19... July 1942. That VX129397 Robert Burroughs became missing on 1st July 1942. You're living there for three or four years in the hope that they come home, which would be dashed when they got that letter confirmation from the uh, government that, um, uh, that they all went down. You've gone for four years seeking all the captured, but they've been looked after according to the letter, um, so he could ride his bike <laughs> when he comes home. And uh, then they got the news, really, that uh, they went down on the ship, and they knew they were dead. Dorothy Freeman's life was also changed forever. Daughter Vicky. I didn't ever go to Anzac services. I don't know my mother didn't either. But I do remember one day she was listening to it on the radio. I probably would have been about 15 at the time. And I heard her crying and I went in and I said, what's the matter, what's the matter? Oh, she said, I hate listening to this. I hate the brass bands. When I have a head brass band or, or the last post, I always want to cry. I love that man very much. Dorothy Freeman remarried after the war and had three more children. And like many women of her generation, she didn't talk about the past. And her daughters didn't even know about their father's last letter until after Dorothy's death in 1972. I was never shown it as a child or even as a young adult. It was given to me by my stepfather when he gave me all my mother's information. The fact that she had this letter, wouldn't you think it, it would have been shown to 
my sister and I, because it was very important to us. You know, we were both mentioned in that letter and my name was in capital letters. I think I was a bit of a problem baby. <laughs> the repercussions of the war also rippled through the Burroughs family. Not only were Jim's two brothers, Bob and Tom, killed, his father died of heart trouble during the war, and shortly after, their beloved sister Helen died in childbirth. Jim's eldest son, Robert, has been deeply influenced by the family's wartime experience. Because I'm named after Bob, I guess I always felt a special connection with him. My brother Tom was named after his twin brother, and there's no doubt without their deaths I wouldn't have spent the last 52 years doing what I'm doing. And I do what I do with enormous passion and commitment and I love what I do and I find it very satisfying and trying to understand and help end human violence feels to me really important work. As a boy, young Robert wore his uncle's medals to school every Anzac day. And each July his family went to a sparsely attended memorial service held at Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance for those who had died on the Montevideo Maru. I remember my aunt, my father's sister, crying during the service. And it was really clear to me, particularly at the event, the commemoration at the shrine on, on or about the 1st of July each year, that um, it had been a big loss for Dad to lose his big brother. So even though he didn't talk about it, and it was a sense, in a way, of, well, you've got to get on with your life, and Dad is sort of like that, but there was these moments in his life and in my life where um, I got a sense of a man who was really quite deeply missed. The whole world, I believe, is watching Australia today. Growing up in the 60s, the teenage Robert Burroughs developed a deep sense of moral obligation for his uncle's sacrifice. I actually realised, well, I'd actually like to find out more about why we fight these wars and how we can resolve conflicts without fighting wars. Over the years, Robert's been arrested and sometimes jailed for his beliefs. I became a non-violent activist, so I was very heavily engaged in anti-war movements and um, environmental struggles and social justice struggles of various kinds. So what does Robert's 95-year-old father, Jim, make of all this? Uh, I've said to him, Bob, it's like flapping your arms trying to get the moon, but... It doesn't stop him, and he's happy doing it, and he's helping lots of people in lots of countries, and we love him and respect him for that. But one puzzling question still remains. Why did the notoriously brutal Japanese army drop those 395 letters on Port Moresby? The War Memorial's Tracy Langner says it was set in motion by a Japanese private after a random act of kindness by a group of Australian soldiers. A Japanese soldier, Kokichi Nishimura, who was actually serving on Rabaul at the time that the Australian prisoners of war were interned there. Nishimura supervised the Australian prisoners and their main task was to maintain the weapons, clean and maintain the weapons. And he subsequently learnt a Japanese reconnaissance flight crashed into the nearby mountain range around the airfields of Rabaul and both the Japanese pilots were killed and the Australians gave them a proper burial. So when Nishimura found out about this act of humanity, 
He wanted to do something for the Australians and he knew that they were deeply worried that their family had heard nothing. No one knew anything about what had happened to the Australians on Rabaul. So Nishimura thought he would return the act of kindness and facilitate a way for the Australians to get letters home. Private Nishimura lobbied his superiors to make the airdrop and amazingly, they agreed. And in 2003, there was a final note to this story. In his interview with the 7.30 report, that last surviving crew member from the Montevideo Maru revealed another previously unknown part. There were more POWs in the water than crew members. The POWs were holding pieces of wood and using bigger pieces as rafts. They were in groups of 20 to 30 people, probably 100 people in all. They were singing songs. I was particularly impressed when they began singing Old Lang Syne as a tribute to their dead colleagues. Watching that, I learned that Australians have big hearts. The sinking of the Montevideo Maru is the worst maritime disaster in Australian history. All the prisoners on board, over 1,000 of them, died, including the men who had written letters home. Unlike Gallipoli and Kokoda, Changi and the Thai Burma Railway, the sinking hasn't entered into Australia's national memory. But it's a seminal event in the individual histories of many Australian families. I asked Jim, Vicky and Robert if they could write back to their father, brother and uncle today, what would they say? Bob, I wish you were here with me now. I'm so sad that you suffered the fate of the Japanese during the war. Oh, hell, we missed you all those years. Dear Dad, I wish I'd known you. I missed out on having a father. I needed a father. And I'd like to know... I'd say, dear Bob, I'm really sad that you died fighting for something you believed in. I want you to know that your sacrifice was not in vain and that I hope that by giving my life to try to understand why human beings have to kill each other and to find a way to end that, that you feel in some small way that your sacrifice was worthwhile because... It certainly made my life feel worthwhile to me. I'll sign off now. Don't worry. Cheerio. Love, Bob. Don't know when I'll be able to write again. Maybe it won't be long before we are together again. Cheerio. My love to you all, Les. Your ever-loving son, Dream. Last Letters, A Story of War and Memory, was written and presented by Brett Evans. The producer was Ros Blewett, with sound design by Russell Stapleton. And if you'd like to follow up on this story and see some photos, do head to the History Listen page on the ABC RN website. I'm Rebecca Huntley, and I'll leave the last word today to 95-year-old war veteran Jim Burrows. Yeah, my brothers had bad luck. Uh, I was lucky to come home. 
guess I was lucky to be doing radio work as to sing some nasty work. Uh, and I used to wonder, geez, bloody Japs might be able to see this, but um, the jungle's an awful big place and uh, we were lucky uh, we weren't spotted there. I was just overall lucky to come home. My brother's luck was bad. <laughs> 